Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octonom verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody really believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Mark McGrath is fluent in the theories of John Boyd, the OODA Loop, Warfighting for Business, VUCA, and Economics. He is the adaptive strategy teacher and podcast co-host who helps leaders and teams thrive in complex and uncertain environments. He is the chief learning officer of AGLX, a service-disabled veterans-owned small business that teaches methods for confident and agile decision-making and action. So you can imagine why I like him so much. He is the co-host of the podcast, No Way Out, which I highly recommend, which advances the theories and honors the legacy of Colonel John Boyd. He teaches and applies Boyd's theories to business and entrepreneurship, leadership development, and coaching. He's a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, where he served as an officer for six years. He has a bachelor's degree in history, a master's degree in economics, and also is fluent in Espanol. Mark, thank you so much. I put a uh, long string on that kite. And Mark Hardy is the one that actually introduced us. Yep, yeah, brother Marine across the pond. Man, love that guy. Yeah, the Royal Marines and the U.S. Marines have a very strong bond, uh, and it's been that way for a long time. In fact, at OCS, the head of the physical fitness program is a Royal Marine. Oh, so wow. uh, we do a lot of their stuff, and there's a very, as I said, very tight, very tight bond, very tight connection. There's 111 years that they are older than us, wow. so we're the, I guess, the new kid on the block, but... <laughs> The bond is extremely strong, and the culture between the two Marine Corps is very, uh, very tight. Yeah, he is a wealth of knowledge. He's truly living this. And that's the thing. Like The more that we understand this material, the more we realize the depth, the breadth, how much is in here. We were talking about our mutual admiration for um, Stephen Pressfield for the same reason mm. where that man has truly lived these things. If you read his fiction, if you read his nonfiction, if you've read anything that he's done, there will be a part in that that just resonates with you. And you're like, I feel like he's talking to me. And that's a sign, in my opinion, of a great writer. He hits you hard. And I think that somebody should do a documentary or write a biography of him because his life, as he describes it as nonfiction, is so fascinating. And the, the things that he's done from being a trucker, from being a Marine, from working in orchards, um, yes. typing in remote huts, <laughs> just all kinds of fascinating things about that guy. A tremendous mentor, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I love his work. Yeah, he bringing around that Smith Corona in the back of his van. It's so funny because I got to have breakfast with him in Los Angeles last time I was there. And I was talking about how just to write in general, there's resistance, correct? Mm. But then imagine having to have this 30 pound Smith Corona, have paper, set it up in there, like the the, the keys themselves have built-in resistance trying to write this thing out. So it took even more commitment in 
on his part, in my opinion, than for us to just grab a, a laptop and just kind of jot down our thought or whatever our reflection was at the moment. He's absolutely walking the walk. And I, I think that he only talks to talk because he does walk the walk and he has walked the walk. And he cannot get enough of his, I, I read his nonfictions multiple times throughout the year. As I mentioned, I also listen to them on audio. And then of course, his fiction novels are tremendous. And his, his one nonfiction book, The Lionsgate, about mm-hmm. the Six-Day War, is, yes. I think, one of the better books of, say, Uda, like understanding understand the concepts of Uda. But yeah, he's, uh, he's just phenomenal. And so speaking of the Uda Loop and speaking of VUCA, I know a lot of people are that are listening to us are veterans or, or active duty or first responders, or maybe they've heard it before. But... Could you explain to us, first of all, from a very one-on-one level, what UDA is, what VUCA is? And the reason why I'm so impressed with your work is I find a lot of people that like to take just the superficial top layer of something, like you said, they just have the acronym. But then when you ask them to apply it, they can't even do it in a detached environment, let alone when there's pressure, let alone when there's resistance, let alone when there's adversity. So could you start us from that kind of beginning understanding of the OODA loop, understand what VUCA is? Because I'll, I'll have a million questions within that. Sure. So I always started from the very beginning that, quoting Heraclitus, everything is in a state of ceaseless flux. Yes. Everything flows. There's a flow and a rhythm of the universe that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, aka VUCA. You know, volatile in that it changes without prediction. Uncertain is that I, I, I don't know what will be complex in the sense of the, the connectivity of things are often beyond my, my sight and comprehension. It's not so much what I can see, it's, it's what I don't see that I could be uh, connected to that will uh, surprise me at some point. And then ambiguous in that everything is subject to interpretation from the eyes of the beholder, which brings us to say orientation. So a lot of people will talk about OODA loop and they have this little circle OODA, you know, observe, orient, decide, act. And we just, or it's something that we tape up, you know, on our, on our HUD and our fighter jet or, you know, on our, we'll have it in our hand while we're in a, a tactical situation. It's completely missing the boat of what uh, John Boyd, who discovered yes. and, uh, and put forward the thinking on this. It's, it's, it's really how we deal with our reality, which is VUCA, how we deal with uh, how we function in, in the complexity of life and the complexity of things that we that we deal with. And it all starts with our orientation. And you have one and I have one and everyone has one and they're, they're as unique as a fingerprint. It's, it's who we are. It's where we're from. It's what we believe. It's how we're taught, how we're trained, our openness to things, our emotional state, our psychological state, our, our willingness to learn. You know, learning is a choice. Our ability to break things down and our ability to build things up, our, our creativity, our, our collaborative traits, our cooperative traits, all of that forms sort of our cognitive software, if you will, that we're all born with, which in turn shapes how we see the world, how we decide inside of that world, how we act in that world, and how we learn within that world in order to adapt. And ultimately, if our orientation, our cognitive software, if we're updating it and we're revising it and we're listening to Octanon Verba and we're reading Stephen Pressfield and we're reading Stoicism and we're studying math or science or whatever it is that we're doing, all of that's getting uploaded into our software ostensibly to keep our orientation aligned to reality Mm -hmm. so that as we make observations, they're shaped 
more effectively, more in line with what we see, you know, what's actually happening, so that our decisions and our actions and our learning and our adaptations can be effective. The example I always use to, to explain it to say my kids, you know, an iOS inside of your phone or your iPad, if you don't update it, what happens? Well, you, there's certain things you can't do. You're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to function properly. It's the same thing with our, our cognitive software, with our, with our orientation. If we don't update it, if we don't revise it, if we're not open to the changes and the, the flow of the universe, then we're, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're gonna we're gonna suffer entropy, you know. We're gonna we're gonna yeah. suffer defeat because our our observations will be misaligned, thus our decisions and our actions will be off. And ultimately, when we are defeated, become obsolete. We won't even know what happened. We don't even know what happened to us. Right. It's uh, the analogy in in the martial arts, right? The punch that knocks me out, someone that I don't see coming. Yeah. Or the idea that I take this opponent or this objective for for granted. Yeah, and I, I look beyond it, and that makes me lose focus on the presence of, of the present moment, the OODA loop, et cetera. You could think of it too, like if the VUCA of the world, the state of the universe, the flow of the universe is is nonlinear; it's asymmetric. And if I go around with symmetric formulas or linear formulas and try to apply that, I'm going to have a hard time. So, really, what you end up doing is helping people think differently and help them look at what they have differently. And that's how they get the different options. Let's say I could take two professional sports teams. They all have access to the same stuff. They basically have, you know, the, the, let's just say functionally there's parity across the board, right? It's, it's going to come down on how they look at what they have differently. And if they can look at it with sort of the, the frame of reference, the mindset, the orientations that we're talking about, they're going to see things differently than their opponents. And right. ultimately what that's going to do as they move forward through time, and they're able to do things faster. They're able to see things quicker, act yes. faster, yes. adapt faster. The opponent's not going to know what hit them. And, you know, we've all seen lopsided sporting events, whether it's a, a UFC fight or a football game or a hockey game. We've, we've seen lopsided outcomes. And it looks like the one side didn't know what was happening. Well, that's ultimately what, when our, when our orientation is aligned and, and, and ready, we're able to cycle through that process of observing, orienting, deciding, and acting, and learning quicker. We leave the opponent in a situation that, that they're not going to be able to adapt to. They're not going to be able to handle. And it's the same in life, business, sports. It's, it's universal. Yeah. And I love these principles because, as we were mentioning before, John Boy was very much a student of just of philosophy of human nature of this love of knowledge in a pragmatic and practical way in the real world and so yeah. this understanding of stoicism zen taoism the, these universal truths he was able to distill them into this sort of loop but as you're saying like already you've gone so many layers into this because you truly have mastered the subject and it gives you so much more depth and knowledge than another person who is stuck with the very abc kind of idea of of how to begin yeah, I mean that's the that that's that's really the power of Boyd, and that's what's often misunderstood because the way he's reduced inaccurately is that it was a fighter ace from Korean War that thought of all this stuff as a fighter pilot, and and there's this little tactical model we all can use in certain situations that 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 doesn't apply everywhere, and it's a complete misunderstanding of 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 how he worked. He was not a fighter ace. He was in combat, but never fired a shot and there's no evidence that he ever had a shot fired at him or vice versa he didn't knock down one one mig and the development of these ideas actually came 
in earnest after he had retired from the Air Force. And really, he looked back at those days, but they were not the reason that that created the, you know, it wasn't the, the genesis of Oodaloop, so to speak. And what's interesting is when you look at the epistemology of Boyd's work, beginning with science, right? There's a paper that he wrote in 1976 called Destruction and Creation. I would challenge everybody to read this. And I would also say if it's dense, because it is very dense, it's the only thing he ever published, but it's extremely dense. There's an evolutionary epistemology of destruction and creation by his closest collaborator, Franklin, aka Chuck Spinney, which everybody can get online. PDF, you can see my copy. <laughs> um it's very well loved. It goes with me. Oh, yeah, it goes yeah, with yeah. me everywhere. But I have to tell you, like I, I could, you know, destruction creation was dense for me until I, till, till Spinney came out with that epistemology. Things made more sense. But what we started with was why, why was it that I was able to come up with energy maneuverability theory? And energy maneuverability theory was the uh, equation that he came up with that informed fighter design, which improved things like we came up with F-15, F-16, A-10, F-18. Why was it that me, you know, just an Air Force officer with a thinking, challenging mind and all these PhDs and all these aer- aeronautical engineers, how is it that they never came up with this, but I came up with this? And that's kind of what led him on his academic path. And in destruction and creation, he came up with three things. It was uh, the law of entropy, second th- law of thermodynamics, mm-hmm. uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and Gödel's incompleteness theorem. And what he did was he fused all those together and said that a system within itself cannot verify its own efficacy. You have to, you have to break, you have to challenge, you have to yes. revise. And ultimately, what came is what we know is was Uda. But what began was a 20-year period from 76 till his death in 97, so 21 years, 20 years approximately, of constant research of multidisciplinary thinking. So at the beginning, you might argue that his understanding or explanation of Uda was kind of how it's reduced, OODA. But as time went on and he studied more things like Toyota production system and Zen and yes. and Buddhism, you know, more economics and Sun Tzu and, and, and more warfighting. What he came up with was Uda was how our orientation functions inside of uh, complexity, how it's ultimately how we as humans deal with reality. And I believe it to be axiomatic because if you can show me a situation where humans don't observe, decide, and act, then I'd be curious to learn about it. <laughs> Yeah. And so the first question I, I have specifically about OODA loop is just like what you're saying. Oftentimes, the reason why we have a cognitive bias, the reason why you're sort of stuck in this almost premeditated, this prejudice from past experiences or, or our mm. belief of what a past experience is, sometimes they get the, the two O's switched. Instead of actually orienting, they're trying to observe without being in the correct place of orientation. Therefore, they are already skewed from the very beginning. Therefore, anything that they do step-by-step from there, even if it's logical, is going to be inaccurate or not as complete as it could be simply because they're kind of one step behind or they are, they've are they got mm. that, that wrinkle. Does does that feel true or am I off? Yeah. Well, like I guess I, w- I would step back and I'd say there's two orientations. There's orientation, mm. the noun, and orientation, the verb. And I think orientation as the verb was what most people are fixated on. Orientation, the noun is the thing that most people miss and orientation. The noun is what I'm saying is like orientation is what makes you, you that determines how we sense, decide and act. 
in our environments, our our education, our beliefs, our our stoicism, our our understanding of science, our understanding of nature, that kind of thing. That that's our internal operating system. That's what that's our cognition. That's our consciousness. That's our perception. That's what most people screw up. I think when they're when they're teaching or talking about Uda is they're only thinking of orienting as a verb. And orienting is a verb, and you do observe, you orient, you decide and act. But all of that flows back to flow. All of that flows out of your consciousness, your being, your perception. That's that's big O orientation. That's our that's our uh, system of cross referencing. That's our system of weighing. That's our system of judgment. That's our systems of belief. That's our systems of understanding. All of that is inside of our orientations. You mentioned cognitive biases. Like all of our cognitive biases, they're stored inside of our. You know, they're uploaded to our orientation so that's a that's a big key if we don't understand that then you're, you're going to learn uda ineffectively in the competitive sense you hope that your competitors understand the simplistic version of uda only they they don't understand orientation i mean, we, I mean we're laughing but that's yeah. that's that's why blockbuster's not here anymore you know and that's why that's why kodak's not kodak the way it used to be anymore you know you know if i understand that if my orientation is misaligned it's going to have those effects on my my shaping of the world and if i if i shape the world to the way i want it and it's not the way the world actually works then i'm going to be uh, i'm going to be in a lot of trouble <laughs> yeah and we've seen many examples of this where people again theoretically they have this incredible thing on the board they're writing out this plan and it looks beautiful but we understand that once bullets fly it doesn't survive first contact and now we have yeah. to have the capacity to have that drop down menu to have the contingency not from this place of it's a defeated mentality but more this idea of listen i have to assume that there may be something that i'm not taking into consideration and if that is the case i mean when the days when we can just run straight into the end zone untouched th those are great but those are the exception more than the rule right yeah the the planning the training the practicing they're, they're always going to be superior to a plan and again, practice, you hope you're yes. right. Yeah, you you hope that your competitors are fixed on a plan and they're going to stick to a plan. A lot in business, you'd see it all the time where they're going to stick to the plan, come hell or high water. And when it's not working, then they're going to do it harder. You know, they're going to double down. They're they're not going to adjust, and they don't empower their people um, in a way to make the necessary adjustments to increase the increase the speed and. You know, people are afraid to make decisions because they don't want to get punished. They don't want to lose their job or whatever, and they don't have the uh, autonomy. Um, but ultimately, that that has a negative effect across the whole team uh, of any size. And that's the other thing I guess we should mention about UDA is that it's fractal. Mm -hmm. You know, I have an orientation, you have an orientation, and we're combining them as a team to make this podcast go. You know, we get three other people and we have a starting five for a basketball team, right? And we have that orientation. And then we have, uh, you know, we're veterans. We have that orientation. We're Americans. We have that orientation. Everything in between, you know, it 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 scales. Yeah. And if it's not aligned with the way the world's actually going, then, then usually the results are going to be not what you think. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell the people I work with in their companies, if we just are trying to scale, we're also scaling the inefficiency and that can literally scale us out of business if we're not careful. We have to dam those things up or try to plug those holes or at our best, like you said, with entropy, even if I'm trying to 
clean this thing up and trying to keep this inefficiency from expanding, even within that, it's still expanding in many ways. So we have to be yeah. very cognizant. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be, you have to have an environment, say in a team where it's safe to bring up ideas and thinking and sharing that you're not going to get quashed. You're not going to get punished for taking initiative or, or bringing up ideas. And you see that quite a bit where people are afraid to, again, we're talking about make a decision or do something that would help the organization as a whole, but they're prohibited or they're precluded from doing that because of the, the culture is not a learning culture or the culture is not a, 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 an open culture where feedback is welcome and that kind of a thing. And again, what you're saying, you're talking about the reality We've seen plenty of people that will have these things hanging up in their office that say, oh, you know, safe, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're saying that they're giving you autonomy, but then yeah. you actually bring it forward and you get punched in the mouth about it or you get beat up about it, even if you're correct, because there's ego, there's like cronyism, whatever the, the case may be. Now, what have you done? You basically told that person, hey, I like this idea. I don't want to hear it, though. I don't want you to try to apply it in any real kind of That's way. That's verba non acta. That's the exact, exactly. it's, it's, everybody loves to hear about it, but it's not, not the real thing. Exactly. No, we don't want verba non acta. We want acta non verba all day. Yeah. That's yeah. what gets us there. So another part about OODA loop. So uh, I know that you're, you train, you have much, a lot of training, whether it be martial, whether it be physical, all these other things. Mm. I've done martial arts for 40 years. So when we're going through the OODA loop, oftentimes and we hear it in the military, right? Something happens mm -hmm. if we're trained well enough, the training takes over, and now we are no longer making that cognizant decision. Is it possible that we could actually create an OOA loop without the D component in there? Because I've already, or maybe I've already preemptively made the decision in the preparation to lead me to that place. Yeah. Well, I just grabbed this off the shelf. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, this is one of the best uh, orientation books of all time. And I think it speaks to what you're talking about that. And for, and for those of you that don't know, that was the Tao of Jeet Kune Do by Bruce Lee. Who, by Bruce Lee. Yeah. I'm a, a, I'm a Bruce influence. Lee, you know, I've been to his grave in Seattle. Uh, yes. I, I, I've seen all his movies a million times and I've read that book a million times. Yeah. You want to be like water but you want to, you want to act without thinking. So like if I've trained for something enough, that's the thing about OODA, which, which Boyd describes in the OODA loop sketch and loop. When we writes out OODA loop sketch, and we say this on our podcast, what informs Boyd's OODA loop sketch loops and quotes, because mm -hmm. it's not really a loop. Correct. And the sketch is merely an illustrative abstraction of how our orientation functions in reality. But the two key components of that sketch are uh, illustrated as implicit guidance and control. I always tell people, circle those in red. And that's how your orientation shapes observations and actions, that the more we orient to something, and this is what you're speaking about, the more that we're oriented to something, the more that we're, in other words, the more that we've prepared, the more that we've drilled, the more that something becomes second nature, our orientation implicitly guides and controls observation so we can see things quickly and figure it out and action so we can just act without, without having to go through the whole process you know um i always like to use the example of uh, pilots that have ejected out of fighter planes and I've, I've met several of them and they all seem to have one thing in common like do you remember pulling the handle and they they're like no <laughs> they don't remember anything because their instinct took over that they've trained for something so many times 
they just do it, you know, or if you've ever met an aviator that's auto auto rotated a helicopter down, like they're not, they just know how to do it. Like they don't, they're not thinking about, they're not going through that whole process. Like they just know what they need to do when they need to do it. Or, you know, maybe a more accessible example for people is like when a quarterback drops back, they're not stopping. Okay. I need to observe what's going on. I need to orient and think of all my practice and training. And, and this is how I throw a ball. No, they just, they just do it because they've, they've, trained for it so many times and i think that's what bruce lee was saying and kind of what you're what you're hitting on when you have a discipline where there is a lot of drill and a lot of repetition um that's not for handling mechanical situations of course that's for handling things quick when they emerge out of surprise or they uh, unexpectedly or you know in line with vuca absolutely and like you said i i'm a huge fan of bruce lee I actually have lineage to him through the people that I've, I'm an instructor under. So, oh, wow. The, yeah. And so hearing them say similar things or reading these things where, as you're saying with experience, Bruce Lee famously said, I don't hit, it hits all by itself. So the right hand lead coming out because he sees the opening, because he's trained this punch thousands and thousands and thousands of times, correct? And I see your, you may be, you may have it right there. Is that what you're looking no, at? No, well, there's, you know, the emptying your mind, you know, like, like that kind of thing. I mean, I, I mean, yeah. I'm just getting done telling everybody to upload all this stuff into your orientation. <laughs> yes. but, at, but at the same time, there is, I think, I think we're talking about is like the balance. One of the articles I have up on my sub stack is the immovable and the Schwerpunkt. Boyd following uh, the Germans that were assessing themselves after the Napoleonic defeats, they were trying to figure out, okay, what yes. do we need to do differently? What, what, yes. that, that was a big area of study for Boyd. The expert on this is Don Vandergriff, who's a good friend, uh, Army Army uh, and Marine veteran. But the Schwerpunkt was like the focus and direction. Mm. And for, I think for my, my article, I was talking about how that's sort of similar for for Bruce, is that's the the yes. immovable, the immovable in the Schwerpunkt. So, yeah, Bruce Lee's famous philosophy is this idea that I absorb what is useful, I discard what is useless, and I have what is specifically my own. But the original quote that that came from was from a student that asked him, they say, Hey, Bruce, which system do you feel is the best? He's like, I use whatever works and I steal it from wherever I can find it. So great tie into Boyd there because following Bruce Lee or aligned with that, he would let go of things fast. If something didn't work, you let go of it quick and move on. Or he hated putting, you know, that's why he only had one really published work um, after he, after he retired with all this type of thinking, because he thought that it get ossified. And they get static and they yes, get yes. they get stuck. Whereas it's always things always are changing. So it's you have to be willing to let go of what you knew then in light of new information because things are always changing. So one of his quotes was that you have to challenge all assumptions. Otherwise, what becomes doctrine today will become dogma forever after and it becomes immutable. And that's that's bad. That's bad for a team. Yes. It's bad for an organization. Um, he was also very famous of saying, like, you know, if you think what I'm telling you is gospel and set in stone, take it outside right now and burn it because you're basically limiting yourself and the universe doesn't work that way. Things are always changing. One other thing I'd add, because you talked about martial arts, the Book of Five Rings was one of his favorite books. Oh, of course. Uh, yes. Yeah. And that's yes. a, a very, very influential on, um, you know, the final Uda sketch before he passed. So. And Musashi is, for those of you that aren't familiar, 61 um, duels to the death, obviously survived, very much a person that went against the grain of what everyone else was doing, fighting with two swords at times, fighting with a wooden sword at time, which 
many don't understand that if you've never trained with a sword, a, a metal sword, and then a wooden sword, a metal sword has spring. If you have a sword and I hit you, it springs back naturally. If I hit a sword that you have that is made of wood and it's thick enough, it actually kills the energy in that thing and it stops, it pulls the time from you. Mm. So now maybe it sticks, maybe you're behind. And because I understand that, I'm anticipating that. It's natural broken rhythm as Bruce Lee would imagine. And now I'm one step ahead of you. And that singular step puts me light years ahead of you by the time I swing the sword. Yeah, it's well, yeah, energy was a big thing for Boyd, energy maneuverability theory. I mean, that's you know, it, there's some parallels in there, I'm sure. I'm an undergraduate historian, not a not a uh, physicist, yeah, me too. Me too. but my uh, <laughs> my 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 suspicion says studying him and his biography and his work that you know, the ability to gain and lose energy like that, you know, that's what gave our fighters that um that came after the Vietnam War that advantage of of speed and being able to turn yes. inside of loops rather than just being the fastest, the heaviest, the most armored, it doesn't, it doesn't win wars. It doesn't win competitions. One of the things that's really cool about Boyd, if you're ever interested in how, you know, insurgents and, and, and guerrillas mm -hmm. win, that was a big part of, of, of patterns of conflict, which is his brief that he's most often, um, I, I wouldn't call it his most important brief. I would call it, I would say conceptual spiral is probably his most important, but, but patterns of conflict is his well, most well-known. And he talks about how all these cases where someone's outmatched, underfunded, outgunned, they still win. And the difference was the way they fought yes. with what they had, not what they had, not at the at the physical level. So a big uh, input for Boyd and how he really connected with the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps was the first organization and really the only military organization to adopt them as, uh, as one of their own. We wondered why, with all the advantages we had of capital and manpower and technology and weaponry, yes. why did we lose? Like it, it didn't make any. It didn't make any sense. Well, we lost because they had a different way of looking at things. They had a different philosophy. The opponent had a different philosophy. They had a different ability to uh, embrace adversity, right? To embrace discomfort, and they could. They had patience, and they could outlast us. And, that was it. It was know. that that full level of commitment. And, and as we see, I was telling you about my squad leader, who's a, who's a Marine. Mm. He said, um, Anderson for us, because during the FTX, we had two teams. And by the end of this, the second week, we had almost everybody broke off was broken. Mm. So it was he and I and two other guys. And he's like, all right, we're still first squads. We're still trying to initiate the tip of the spear for the, for the FTX. And he says, this is what you're going to say to yourself this whole time. Speed is my security. Speed is my yeah. security. And so we couldn't wait for the the fire to keep their heads down. We couldn't wait to, we didn't try to go around. We skirted things. We went, we were direct. We had violence of action. If if nothing else, like you said, that asymmetrical warfare is what will beat symmetrical warfare all day. If there's commitment, if there's patience, and if there's aggression in the process. Yeah, it's the cognitive edge. It really is the, it's yes. the cognitive edge. I, I, I remember when I went to OCS, I was wondering why people, candidates, officer candidates that were, I was in really good shape back then. I thought that guy's in a lot better shape than me. Why is he quitting? Like, why is he washing out? Or how come he can't complete these runs or these, these hikes or whatever? And it's all in the head. A buddy of mine I grew up with, uh, went to grade school and high school with, grew up in the neighborhood. He's a Navy SEAL. And he likes to say of the 11 that graduated in his buds class, they weren't the most physically fit 
they weren't the strongest. They weren't the fastest runners. They couldn't do the most dips or pull-ups. They were the ones that wanted it more than the 100 and however many got washed out or, or, or dropped on request. Yes. The DOR'd and they quit. So, you know, when you think of it that way, it really is your cognitive edge that yes. that's that's your advantage. It's it's not necessarily your your physical edge. Yeah, the mind can push the body much further. And I say this for better or for worse, because as silly as it sounds, my mind was strong enough to break my body. Mm. My mind was strong enough to say, ignore this pain, suck it up, push. Just try to get sort of numb past this and just endure through this obstacle. So we we are capable of much more than we are at right now. And it goes back to that idea, like you say, of once we're here and we're committed and we understand that it's going to be discomfort, there's going to be discomfort, it eventually reaches a fever pitch. Mm. And then eventually it doesn't hurt anymore. It, it still hurts, but not to that degree. And then once you say, I can sustain this, for one more breath, one more moment, I can lean into this. And then slowly, in my experience, it just slowly dissipates. It's yeah. like 99% of what it was, 98, 97, 96. And we just stay in that pocket. Reminds me of a book that my, uh, one of my best friends, he's a, a Naval Academy grad and F-18 pilot. We were basic school classmates together and we're still really close. Um, years ago, he gave me uh, thoughts of a philosophical fighter pilot. And it's by James James Bond Stockdale, and that's one everybody should read. Yes. And and that that book will get you through anything. <laughs> Absolutely. It's... Would you would you think of what he went through in uh, as a POW? Yes. And uh, it was stoicism actually that he resorted to and pulled it. So again, you know, we'd say uh, at the at the macro scale, like that's the way of the way of thinking. He just looked at it differently. And one of the things I remember in that book is like the talking about the the difference you know about the optimists the yes. the, the optimists were the ones that uh were sure to die because they kept saying well they're going to let us out by christmas yep. oh they're going to let us out by easter and then easter would come and then they're going to let us out by fourth of july and then that would come and then they're going to let us out by thanksgiving now then they're going to let us out by you know just the cycle of self-defeat versus uh declaring a war inside your mind again it's orientation that empowered him to sense to side and act differently than than the others that get you through that when i was in infantry school i was in infantry school in 2011 when it was still challenging they took us outside i don't remember at what point what week it was but they took us outside we're in the rain and it's like you're at fort benning and it's still a little bit cold out there and mm. uh, they're just like burpees go you know no no rhyme or reason and you hear the younger guys around me i'm 38 at the time I hear 19, 20 year old guys around me cussing under their breath. This is stupid. Why are we doing this? And like you're, you're saying, they're putting the brake on themselves mentally. And that's making the physicality that much harder than it needs to be. Mm. For me, once I was out there and I committed, once I signed the contract, I gave my mind and my body to that drill instructor, to that drill sergeant and just said, it's almost like he's got the remote control and I'm just the character in the game. And I just kept going because like you said, we got to a hundred and everybody's like, okay, they're going to stop at a hundred. And then you go, what a one. And you hear the guys, blah, 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 and they're just all, and that's what they're doing. They're literally trying to show you or, yeah. uh, or like with the ruck marches, right? You do this 20 mile ruck march and you're walking back into headquarters and then they walk past headquarters and you hear the guys going, what's going on? We're right here. Why are we not stopping? And it's like, 
they're trying to see, and you may only go another two mile loop after that, but they want to show you what the mentality of expectation is and your capacity to adapt to that expectation in real time can do for your performance and then the morale of everyone around you. Yeah. You start looking for the linear, you start looking for the certainty and, 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 and all you do is get disappointed. And, and it goes back to, I think what Stockdale was saying about the optimists, you say, yes. well, here we are, we're, we're pulling into the, to the grinder and I can see the barracks. It must be over. And then no, you got another 10 miles. Yeah. It's that false hope that comes with trying to predict certainty and not going with the flow of things. You know, the analogy I always like to use, uh, I like to surf. I was stationed mm. in Hawaii and, uh, taught my four kids how to surf uh oh good goofy foot long borders um <laughs> but you know you go out you paddle out you you catch a wave but you don't know what you're getting you know you have to hit it just right and then you learn from that and then you go back out and then you paddle up and you get again and you learn from that and you go out and it it doesn't always go your way but i have to be open to the possibilities there's nothing standard about it and it's just like the rest of everything. There's nothing standard about life or business. It's 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 a constant state of flow. It's in a constant state of flux. So you have to be prepared to make the necessary adjustments in order to do whatever: surf, play football, be a lawyer, be an accountant, you know, have a podcast, be a consultant, or whatever. You you have to go with the flow. I always like to say is that at that point, when your orientation is is aligned. And as Boyd's taught us, orientation shapes how we observe. Now we see VUCA as an advantage. Now we see VUCA as something that we can harness. Now yes. we see that as we thrive inside it, as we overcome our own friction that's preventing us, and we, over, we overcome those things that otherwise would have prevented us from, from thriving, we're magnifying and amplifying that inside of our opponents, inside of our competitors. Yes. We're creating situations for them where they're standing there saying, I don't even know what's, I don't even know what's going on, you know, because they're operating at such a tempo, such a rhythm that is, it, it, it's not textbook. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see what they're doing. And like you said, and what does that do? That creates that idea of hesitation that mm -hmm. creates that mentality. And then what does that also do? In my opinion, diversity has momentum. Yeah. So if they see this as an adversity that's overwhelming them, like a like a wave, like in the TED Talk, right? Yeah. If I, if I try to fight it, it's going to drown me. I will die in the undercurrent. But if I can learn to blend, it gives me unlimited power. Yeah, and, and I think this is another, it kind of ties to another thing about Uda. You have to learn how to see what others don't. So whereas you, know, you and I might see adversity as an advantage or VUCA as something to harness, others might see it as something that I have to eradicate. And that's exactly what you want your competitors to think. You, you, you want to be able to see what others don't. You just don't merely want to break things down. You want to build back into something that's novel. And sometimes you're building, you're building back and recreating with broken pieces. Things have been broken. Yes. Things have failed. Yes. Things have uh, not gone according to plan. But you take those broken pieces and you recreate something that didn't previously exist before because your mind, your orientation is constantly revising and updating and empowering you and your teammates to see things differently. And out of that chaos comes something, comes something new, novel, beautiful. Yes, you wouldn't have discovered it any other way. When I was trying to learn how to play the guitar when I was in high school, 
I wanted to sound like Jimi Hendrix or Jimmy Page or Randy Rhodes or any of these guys. And that shows you how old I am because I'm representing these. 80s yeah, well, I'm right there guitarists. with you. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't have the technical prowess to be able to do what they were doing. Like I could mm. see the, the music or the tablature, but I couldn't play 64th notes. I couldn't do that. But in so studying their knowledge and trying to imitate them, I failed, but I still discovered things that I thought sounded neat to me and I never heard other people do them before. So as my technical prowess continued to evolve, and then I was able to do the 32nd note, the 64th note, all these other technical things. Now I can blend them from my experience in something that people say, that sounds sort of like this person, but I've, that sounds kind of like you. And now we develop, again, that individual style, that characteristic, that voice as a as a speaker, as a leader, as an author, whatever that may be. And I wouldn't have gotten there any other way. There is a real beauty in repurposing sometimes, like when things are smashed and destroyed and broken and you can build something that didn't previously exist. There is a real, there is a real beauty in that. And I think that, you know, that's what makes a lot of great artists, great artists, you know, is that they can, they can see what others don't and, and, and repurpose something out of the, out of the rubble or out of the, out of the ashes. That really is something. You know, I think uh, Taleb calls it anti-fragility, right? I mean, things that they gain from disorder, you know, you need to be broken down in order to build up and get stronger. And that's not always a linear path. Yes. That's why adversity is a gift. I I got to train with Bruce Lee's protege this uh, last weekend in Tulsa, Oklahoma. His name is uh, Guru Dan Asanto, 87 years old. This man has learned and forgotten more about martial arts than what I will ever learn in my life. Mm. And he made this this comment. He said, I'm trying to show you these things. He said, but you will learn a lot more from discovery on your own, irrespective of if I've shown you or not, because it's the path that I took to get there. He says, but here's what you have to remember. Chances are you may have already been aware of this, but when you find it via your own route, it means much more. It has more impact yeah. and you're more likely to hold on to it. So yeah. in the martial arts, they say when one teaches to learn, so even with that, it's another avenue of approach to help you better master the material, which I think, again, hearing you speak about Boyd and Uda and Vuka, that's why I wanted you on because you understand this so deeply and you've taught it so much that now, even the questions I was asking you, the, the fact that I was incorrect when I was thinking of switching the O's, that, that shows you that I, I learned a lot just from the conversation right now. You can. So... Poch likes to point this out that, um, in fact, he's written a great, a great article about this, that sometimes you go, oh, 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 like you go back or oh, yes. oh, D, oh, like it's not always oh, oh, D, A, loop, oh, oh, D, A, loop. And it's not always, you know, go right to oh, go right to act you know, from the diagram that we're, we're constantly in a state of learning if we open ourselves up to that, you know, yes. and what's really crazy about John Boyd. And anybody that's uh, been in his archives, like like I have, and uh, I've been in there with Ponch, I've gone there on my own. Man, Boyd was pulling from every possible discipline you could think of. He was not just an economist or not just an engineer or not just a fighter pilot. I mean, he was pulling from history, philosophy, literature, warfare, thermodynamics, aerodynamics, everything you could think of. I mean, he was in, in his source list is if I could read a quarter of those books, I would think that I'd have a life I'd be pretty learned. I mean, you look at just the source list for patterns of conflict, or you look at just the source list for destruction creation. He was constantly in a state of learning and knowing as we're lucky enough to know some of his acolytes that worked with him personally, 
he was talking about evolutionary biology right up to the time that he died. I mean, he was still going wow. and not quitting. And I have to say that when I first came into contact with these ideas was through the class called Evolution of the Art of War, which was something that was required mm. in, uh, in the Naval ROTC program. I had, a, I had a scholarship to college and it was required for all Marine options. And it was called the Boyd Cycle. The Boyd Cycle, like O-O-D-A, right? And I still have my original notes, but when you think about it, like that was 1994, 1995. I mean, I've been chasing after this stuff ever since. Um, it really didn't hit me until after I got out of the military where I realized what I had been empowered with, you know, through the Marine Corps warfighting curriculum, which is, I think, hands down, one of the best ways if you want to learn concepts to apply to your everyday life, be it business, be it sport. All these publications are free online. And I always like to say your tax dollars paid for this stuff. <laughs> you might as well, might as well you, might, from you might as well do it. I get I've, I, Tim Ferriss has that question, you know, what's the book you've given most as a gift? And I, I would say for sure it's MCDP one, because I can just send people the PDF link mm. to uh, Marine Corps doctrinal publication. Number one, AKA we're fighting. And when I stepped out into the business world, I was wondering like, why, why is it that I'm seeing everything differently? Like, like I'm not, I don't have the biases other people that had just been in the business world or whatever. Right. Like, I, I, why do they think this is so terrible? Like, this seems like awesome to me. This seems like amazing opportunities. Like, what are they talking about? And there was a, sort of a perfect storm. So I'd gone back to school to get my master's degree in economics. And I was uh, studying the Austrian School of Economics, F.A. Hayek, Ludwig von Mises. And then John Robb came out with a book. Uh, he's been a guest on our show twice. He's a tremendous thinker. Um, and he's a massive mind regarding Boyd and other things. Um, John Robb came out with a book called Brave New War, which mm. is amazing. And then Franz Osinga came out with a book called Science Strategy in War, which is basically, some people say this is the, bo the book Boyd would have written, but it's basically an entire doctoral dissertation about the theories of John Boyd. And they all came out right about the same time. And then I remembered Boyd from, you know, from war fighting in the Marine Corps. And it just opened up my mind in, in so many, in so many ways. And then reading through Osinga and really learning. Oh, and then Chet Richards, by the way, had a book called Certain to Win, which was, I think, quoting uh, Musashi. It's basically mm -hmm. Boyd's theories applied to business. And what I realized was that with this guy that they taught us about in OODA Loop, there's so much more to this that literally applies to every aspect of your life. It affects every aspect of your life. And we tell people all the time. You're already doing this stuff inherently. And it's through knowledge and understanding and awareness of what's actually happening. That's how you can improve your capacity for free and independent action. That's how you can develop and thrive. And I see no limits. Wherever there's a, a, a person that has the, the capacity to observe, decide, and act, there's, there's no limits to what they can do if they effectively understand these ideas. It's so, as you say... If a truth is truly universal, we will see it everywhere. It will be sort of programmed into our reticular activating system. We'll start to see it in places, like you said, that other people don't. And you mentioned Nassim Taleb, this idea of the black swan, this idea of, I think that, I'll paraphrase it because I'll butcher the, the quote, but he says, theorists believe that theory and reality are the same. Realists understand that they are not. So that's why I love what you're talking about, because especially today, how much worthless content how much pap is out there where people mm. are just pulling three quotes from somebody no context whatsoever bringing them together 
trying to make something that makes some sort of sense and then okay you know buy my course subscribe do my thing whatever it is and it to me it's a huge disservice because there is no depth there is no substance there is no breath to what's really going on and instead of trying to learn a bunch of other things if they would just find like you're like what you're talking about a handful of things and then apply them deeply and then ask yourself how the supply like you were saying in the economic market yeah. how supply in my in my relationship with a coworker whatever the case may be and now all of a sudden we have this tremendous knowledge that that will serve us in any arena that we choose to enter yeah i i tell people all the time once you see it you can't unsee it and i also find too the deeper i get in these things i i realize that sort of the the synthetic divisions that i would have had with people otherwise they're broken down so I, you, you start you stop seeing less you know political barriers and boundaries or whatever because a lot of them go against what flows universally right and I personally start to see less importance of those. And I find that I can bring people together that otherwise would not have anything to say to each other or want to be around each other. Because when you can bring them together and show them what's universally true for all of us, yes, they, they, they may come to a different understanding. And so, so I think it's one of the beauties of this, uh, this type of thinking, you know, when you read too, when you, um, if you link to the, uh, evolutionary epistemology that Chuck Spinney has. And if, if you, if you plow through that, you'll see that, you know, things change, you know, Ptolemy had a view of the world and Copernicus had a view and these things evolve, but there was a point where somebody would have said back then, no, the science is settled. The earth is the center of the universe. No, no, the science is settled. That's it. And if you say anything different than that, we're going to tie you to a stake and we're going to burn you and your soul is going to go directly to hell because you don't believe that the earth is the center of the universe or you don't believe that the sun is the center of the solar system. That's the center of the universe. You know, our understanding of things continue to evolve and change and we have to be open to that. So when someone would say, no, the science is settled, that's the end of it. It's not the end of it. Science is, is a constant, constant inquiry constant constant exploration it goes back to boyd why did he never want to put anything in writing why did he never really want to set anything in stone is because everything's always changing and our understanding of those things is constantly in a state of uh change you, know, you and i are old enough to know what a collect call was on a rotary phone yeah but like think about it. if you were a rotary phone manufacturer you're going to do everything you can to fight touch tone phones right you're going to you're going to stop their their uh their development you're going to stop their distribution because you don't want to change and you don't want the rotary phone to go out of business right I mean, how many times do we see thinking like that well it's the same exact thing you know something novel came and it showed uh this goes back to you know destruction creation right something's destroyed when something's new is created and you have to let it you have to let it flow i mean how many industries stop Yes. progress and development of things because they don't want to have any competition they don't want to make the necessary changes eventually they go obsolete that's why there's no more blockbusters that's not why there's no more um like we talked about earlier codec as we know it these things just change yeah and it's it's evolve or die is is the adapt or die yeah absolutely that's it it's it's the key and then so you you made some really beautiful insights in my opinion about how trauma informs our interpretation of Buddha as well. Mm. Could you kind of expand on, just touch on that a little bit? Because again, that comes back to orientation, right? That comes back to observation, right? Yeah. 
way so many examples are going through my mind, like dogs, not everybody likes, likes dogs, you know, and I have uh, two Airedale Terriers and, you know, if you don't know Airedale Terriers, they, they're, they're scary enough to keep people off the lawn, but they're also exceptional family dogs. But if, if, if your experience with dogs was negative as a kid, you got bit by a dog or, um, you know, there was a, a scary dog or something like that. You're, you're less likely to want to be around a dog or pet a dog. I don't know if that's a, that's kind of a crude example of, of trauma. I used to, my aunt's a plastic surgeon. And when my now 20 year old was two, I'd say, uh, Hey, go show aunt Bobby Murphy's teeth. And she'd walk up to the dog and like, you know, pull open his teeth oh. and she would have nightmares and heart attacks because her one of her specialties was wound care and a lot of the wound care she did was from children who were who were bit by dogs so a lot of people will connect what they've experienced previous experience is a big part of your orientation um, that would include trauma right so you know you and i know plenty of people you know brothers and sisters that deal with trauma yeah. daily from from what they've been through and you know that that that's a very hard thing to get that i don't think you can ever get it out of your orientation you can learn to manage it and mitigate it and there's all kinds of interesting ways that are coming out now you know some people do say martial arts or some people um there's the psychedelic therapy that's been um being tested and advanced really interesting but yeah trauma would be a big part of uh of one's orientation because because previous experience so when you look at orientation as boyd described it there's only five things that he that he has inside of orientation so look at the OODA loop sketch um, orientation would have cultural traditions, genetic heritage, uh, previous experience, new information and analysis and synthesis. But that previous experience is where that would that would fall under. That would include trauma. I absolutely agree. And I love the OODA loop and the ability for us to, as you're saying, the more we understand it, the more applicable it is and the more robust it can become. And then it also, I, I, I'm sure it would preclude it, but we talk about people that are going through adversity or hardship, and there's Kubler-Ross's notion of the five stages, the denial, which we see mm. was we see in business, like you were saying, the the rotary phone that denies that there's a that things are changing, that they have to be different. Denial, yeah. anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. But much like you were, uh, like your co-host was saying, very few times do we go through it gracefully. Very few times yeah. is it perfectly symmetrical and say, "I'm in the first stage," so. I, in two to three weeks, I should be here. It's like, again, with the the OODA loop and all these things, when it, it comes into that, it it creates many, many either additional steps or micro steps within it. Yeah. Setting, setting arbitrary numbers sometimes, you know, be they dates or be they, you know, sales goals or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, they're arbitrary and it might, it may or may not be aligned with reality. I remember this was years ago. I worked at a firm where no matter what territory you were in, we were, we were in an asset management firm, all the goals were exactly identical. Everybody had to get, you know, X amount of dollars. And what's funny is that like, you know, if, if you're in Manhattan, you're going to have a much different experience getting uh, investment sales than you are if you're in Omaha, you know, or if you're covering, uh, you know, big country states like, uh, you know, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Iowa. I mean, yes. and and it's interesting how people in, in in centralized decision models they don't grasp that 
because they don't go and see for themselves. That's a, a Japanese Genshi Genbetsu, you know, go yes, and see yes. for yourself. Yes. They, they don't, they don't do that. And, and they, and they force a, uh, an overlay on everybody, irrespective of the uniqueness of their personalities, of the people that they're dealing with, the cultures that they're dealing with. And I think we've seen a lot of this with, you know, how like we would engage with say like allied partners or whatever. I mean, there's not just one overlay formula that applies and works all the time because there's, there's so many complex dynamics that are going on that are beyond the scope of knowing in a book or being able to teach in a class or being able to see on a screen. We had a, one of my favorite stories. I tell this one all the time. One of my favorite guests we've ever had, Viv Reed, is from Australia. And we could link to it, but she's a, she's a complexity consultant. And she's such a delight to talk with. And she talks about how um, she was in one company and one of their one of their standards was uh, answering calls on three rings or less. So if I'm working there and I'm speaking with you, the client, I'm talking with you and the phone's ringing, one, two, three, pick it up, hang it up. One, two, three, pick it up and hang it up. One, two, three, pick it up and hang it up. And on paper from this arbitrary goal, I'm a stud, right? I mean, everybody should be more like Mark. Look how many calls he's fielding, <laughs> right? But this is the seen versus the unseen, right? What, they, what they're not seeing is all the ang angry people that are now going to seek business elsewhere because the metric that I was held to that had nothing to do with reality Correct. alienated the people that were trying to direct action with and coordinate business with or whatever, such that they went to another alternative. But boy, it looked great on paper. You know, that's all. The data looked awesome. Uh, it's the difference between. You know, what Boyd would say, you got to be people, ideas, things in that order always. That's an inviolable order. You can never change that order. People, ideas, and things always in that order. And it's very easy to see inside of any organization, in any in any domain, if if people, ideas, and things is the order. It's very easy. It's very simple to see. It's very simple to see in competitors too, where where people, ideas, and things are not in that order. It's in a it's in a different order. A lot of times things are more important, you know, tech, the new technology that's going to save us all or the new, the new CRM or the new software, or the new, the new plane or the new missile or whatever it is. And it, it doesn't factor in people. That's the beginning of everything. And I think that's a great place for us to put a bow on this. I could talk to you for hours and I'm sure that I will continue to talk to you again hereafter. Mark McGrath, where can we subscribe to your Substack? Tell us about the website. Where would you send us to learn more about you, what you teach, uh, mm -hmm. your materials? Tell us about the No Way Out podcast, et cetera. Yeah, so No Way Out podcast. Um, if you go to our website, uh, um, you can access the podcast that way. You could also go to uh, Buzzsprout, um, which uh, would be nowayout.buzzsprout.com. We could put the put the links up. Yes, My favorite article that my business partner and co-host wrote. It's called Interaction and Isolation, uh, UDA Free Energy Principle and Polarization. Um, that's one of the things I was referencing. I would direct people to... Uh, my substack is called The Whirl of Reorientation. And that's a quote from uh, Conceptual Spiral. And it's actually where the title No Way Out comes from too. Same that the, the universe being VUCA, we're subject to all of these things, imprecision, entropy, uncertainty, et cetera. And there's no way out of the requirement to continue on this world of reorientation to constantly revise and update your, your models. So I was kind of playing with that a little bit. And, and really the Substack is just a lot of the collection of things I've written over the years. 
I use it as a reference point for people that I talk with about um, board ideas and um, students that I, I uh, as I mentioned, I, was, I, I did a, uh, a leadership course and a, uh, an executive education program is really cool and um, use a lot of it there. So, but yeah, aglx.com, uh, No Way Out podcast. We're on all the Spotify, iTunes. Uh, we're now over 50 episodes. So we're doing a lot of great things. We'll have one coming out next week on Boyd and the misunderstanding of Boyd. So it should be, be, be pretty cool. I'm subscribed. I'll definitely download that one. And you've also got some great content on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. I've put the stuff up on, yeah, I'm on, you can, anybody can follow me on uh, LinkedIn, Mark McGrath, AGLX. I'm on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So I, so I still use that platform. Uh, I still use that platform too. Fantastic. Well, Mark, I cannot thank you enough. This has been incredibly edifying for myself specifically. And if you guys are listening, if you didn't take notes or if you're not listening to this at least a couple of times, then I don't know what else to give you. The whole reason why I was so enthralled with what you're doing is because I've I've heard about the OODA loop for years and I've looked at it from a very, you know, just dare I just have a surface level of it and I can regurgitate what it says, but do I know how to use it? I know how to use it better now. You've given some tremendous examples. Mm. You've shown how that it doesn't have to be just this this thing that you you cram into this round peg that you cram into a square hole type thing. Ponch said a great thing. We were interviewed together on Aaron McLean's School of War podcast. And it's a, it's a great interview. If anybody wants, we could link to that. Too. It's actually a really good discussion on Boyd and Uda. But one of the things that Ponch said is that that simplistic version of Uda is not necessarily wrong. It's And it's not necessarily a bad start. It's just incomplete. And it doesn't go, it doesn't go far enough. And I think that that's, uh, that's brilliant advice. So if people know something of it, just understand that there's so much more and you don't want to miss out on that because that's really the, because, because what ends up happening is you leave all the power on the table, all the, all the gifts of it, all the, um, the things that you could, you know, use to imp- improve your capacity for free and independent action and that of your team, you're leaving so much on the table. Yes. If you just stay at that surface level understanding. So again, what Ponch said is I think right on, it's not necessarily wrong. It's just remarkably incomplete. And that's where we would throw out the challenge, go out and learn more because uh, you're leaving a lot on the table otherwise. And by the way, hope that your competitors stay with that very simple yes. surface level understanding, because that's good news for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Knowledge that is acquired, but unutilized is the equivalent of ignorance. I couldn't agree more. There you go. Yeah. The decision not to learn is still a decision and you're still subject (laughs) to these things, you know, whether, whether or not you want it to be. So Mark McGrath, thank you so much. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.